Welcome to the latest on the law, a podcast of the Boston Bar Association. The Commonwealth's premier legal association, the BBA, is home to over 15,000 members and 140 institutional partners consisting of law firms, corporations, government agencies, legal aid organizations, and law schools. Visit us at bostonbar.org to learn more. Welcome, everybody. Um, and many thanks to John Mark Zaberkowitz, who will actually be doing most of the talking today. Uh, John Mark is my favorite Delaware lawyer from the preeminent firm uh, Richards, Layton and Finger and uh, a bona fide expert in uh, Delaware law affecting uh, M&A transactions. And we're delighted to have him. I was just saying to Noel, I'm, I'm in San Diego right now. And, and the last um, couple of days have been like a deluge of rain. I think they got like a year's worth of rain and 24 hours or something like that. Uh, highways were closed and all that, but I was saying to Noel that the sun literally just came out. So I think that bodes well for um, for this presentation. So um, we are going to cover as many cases as we can, and obviously folks can put um, some information into the, into the chat or whatever. Um, we can try to address questions that come up along the way. Um, and uh, as I said, I think John Mark is going to do most of the education here, but we're going to, we're going to jump right in and um, and I'm going to control the slides, and John Mark is going to tell me when to when to progress. But the first case we're going to talk about is Crispo versus Musk, and and just let me give you a little bit of intro on this one. Um, this has getting a, gotten a fair amount of buzz. This case was about whether a stockholder of a target company had third party beneficiary status to sue for lost premium damages under a merger agreement that expressly contemplated lost premium damages. Um, this is the so called Con Ed issue. Uh, named for the 2004 Second Circuit case, Consolidated Edison versus Northeast Utilities. Um, this was the first time the Delaware Chancery Court had occasion to address the issue. Um, in the original Con Ed case, uh, the Second Circuit held that the stockholders of the target company did not have the right to sue a prospective acquiring corporation for alleged breach and to recover lost premium damages. And then after that case, you know, M&A practitioners negotiating merger agreements in Delaware uh, under Delaware law began to take, you know, differing approaches to address this gap in, in seller protection. Um, and, you know, John Mark can confirm, but I think the conventional wisdom up until the Crispo versus Musk case was the Delaware courts would would come out differently than uh, than the Second Circuit had in, in Con Ed. Um, so I don't want to steal John Mark's thunder. So I'll turn it over to him to walk us through the the CRISPR case and how the Delaware Chancery Court came out here. No, that sounds great, Alex. And that was that you're exactly right. I think uh, the Delaware practitioners up until CRISPR versus Musk uh, did kind of think that that you know Delaware wouldn't follow the Con Ed precedent. I think there were at least some suggestions in the case law, you know, specifically you know some language in IBP you know, versus Tyson, uh, as well as Hexion, two of the kind of key M&A case, you know, M&A cases involving MAEs, uh, where there was some language that that really did suggest, you know, along the lines of like in IVP when specific performance was granted, you know, things along the lines of, you know, if we didn't grant specific performance, there would be untold damages, including, you know, how much. So I think there was a lot of, there's a lot of, you know, breadcrumbs in the case, though, even though we've never addressed it specifically, where I think folks thought, look, a Delaware court is probably not going to leave the company without you know that type of remedy. You know, if you're on the um, you know sell side, it's kind of the the we would. Our thought was, you know, you'd probably have you know some some power to hold the buyer's feet to the fire just through the inherent power of equity. But in any event, this this Crispo versus Musk case very significant in terms of M&A practice will 
you know, we're still kind of kind of trying to figure out where this is going to go, you know, frankly, and I think the the practice hasn't really coalesced, but I'll just give a little bit of an overview. So this all stems from, you know, Elon Musk's initial, you know, acquisition of Twitter. So as everyone knows, Elon Musk, you know, signed up a deal to buy Twitter and then shortly thereafter uh, decided maybe he didn't want to buy Twitter any longer. Uh, he sought to get out of the deal. Twitter, uh, you know, moved for, you know, filed suit in court of chancery seeking specific performance shortly after about two weeks after twitter itself sought specific performance a stockholder of twitter uh, luigi crispo brought a suit against musk directly it's pretty odd but a direct suit one of the stockholders of twitter basically saying look he breached the agreement and that stockholder sought specific performance uh you know to force him to close the deal and also sought damages so there are kind of two opinions that are that are relevant from the court of chancery here. The first opinion basically said, look, you know, he doesn't have the right to force Musk to close the deal. And that was, you know, Twitter was was bringing the suit to force Musk to close. There was a provision in the agreement, and we can probably go to the next slide. Um, you know, there was a provision in the in the merger agreement between Twitter and Musk that basically said, look, there are no third party beneficiaries. So subject to one carve out that really, you know, is not, you know, it's not relevant to this discussion at all. The merger agreement said that it's not going to confer any rights upon any person other than the parties to the merger agreement. Now, there was one other provision that the court found slightly inconsistent with that no third party beneficiaries provision. And that was the kind of lost premium provision. And that basically said that, look, if there is a breach, the buyer is going to be liable for, you know, the benefits of the transaction, including, you know, taking into account the lost premium. So, you know, the deal was at a 33% premium. You could also include that, that expectation, you know, as part of the damages award that would be assessed against the buyer in the event of a willful breach uh, of the merger agreement. Now, as we all know, Twitter, Twitter, you know, was ultimately successful in forcing Elon Musk to close, not through the courts, but Elon Musk just closed the deal, rendering the whole thing uh, moot. So after everything was rendered moot, the plaintiff went to the court of chancery, Luigi Crispo, and said, hey, I was the one who rendered this great benefit upon Twitter and all of its stockholders, so I should be entitled to a mootness fee. Now, all of that seems fairly ridiculous in the sense that my guess is that it wasn't exactly Luigi Crispo that forced Elon Musk to close so much as it was Twitter bringing a very compelling uh, case for specific performance. Nevertheless, the plaintiffs went in, asked for the mootness fee, and the court said, look, I already said that your ability to sue for specific performance was not viable. It was a closer question as to whether you could have gotten damages. And why is that? And I think we can move to the next slide. Yeah. And 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 before you, well, I'm going to move to the next slide, but, you know, it just I think just to pause for for you know, maybe some of the more junior lawyers on the on the webinar today. I mean, the provisions in the Twitter agreement were not I mean, were pretty typical. Right. I mean, John Mark, I mean, these were not. These were not um, esoteric, right? This is sort of what a lot of merger agreements, you know, you know, cover, right? This is, what, you know, these two arguably inconsistent provisions are sort of in a lot of merger agreements, right? Yeah, no, a lot of merger agreements would have these types of provisions, and you know, one specifically, you you don't want 
stockholders to be third-party beneficiaries, at least prior to closing. So a lot of times you would say, you know, stockholders are not, you know, no party is a third-party beneficiary other than the directors and officers, the third-party beneficiaries of the indemnification provisions, right? And then stockholders from and after the effective time, right, after the merger is closed and their shares have been converted into the right to receive the merger consideration, from and after that time, they become third-party beneficiaries of Article 2, which is the provision that says you get your money. You get your money, uh, right, exactly. Yeah, but but you don't, I mean, there's certainly buyers do not want stockholders being direct third-party beneficiaries while the merger, you know, before the effective time has occurred, because that means you're giving, you know, an enormous class the right to sue you directly, right. essentially. So Alex is exactly right. This was, there was nothing unique about this. Um, you know, there, there, while there are some variations, you know, where some, some agreements will say your third party beneficiaries after the effective time, but the general construct is exactly as Alex said, it was fairly customary. Whereas you have a provision that says stockholders are not third-party beneficiaries. Nevertheless, the company can kind of sue the buyer to basically collect on behalf of the stockholders, you know, any damages, including that loss of the benefit of the bargain. Whereas our stockholders thought we were going to get, you know, what the share price price was plus whatever Elon Musk was willing to pay, which was a substantial premium uh, to trading. Um, you know, you know, and any any kind of like you know devaluation following the the, the busted deal. Um, so so that was basically the idea. The court, though, said, look, um, you know, kind of looked at at this looked at this whole construct, you know, and trying to figure out whether you know Luigi Crispo was entitled to his mootness fee. Looked at the whole construct in light of the history of the Con Ed case that that you know Alex had gone through at the beginning of this. Um, how practitioners had responded to Con Ed and then kind of looked at at Delaware's approach to Con Ed. And, and, and the court noted that, you know, these Con Ed provisions, one expressly, you know, you could have a provision that says, you know, stockholders are, you know, expressly third party beneficiaries. That, like I said, that you don't see in practice. You, you really just don't see it that much. I'm sure we could all find precedent for anything. But in my experience, that was not the the by by far was was a if if they're out there that is a by far the minority uh, of agreements, and then the um, you know you have the the types of agreements that make the target company the agent for recovering damages on behalf of stockholders. Not in every agreement, but that was probably far more common. And then you know defining liability and damages with respect to lost premium also fairly common. And and common I think they're the two things that I thought were. Well, that I think you know pre-CRISPO were most common were having the either on the one hand saying like look the company can be the agent for all the stockholders for purposes of you know enforcing you know any you know kind of damage you know breach of contract type claim and remedies and and second that you know if if there are such damages you know loss premium would be taken into account um, either having that construct or just being silent altogether. Um, and being silent altogether, I think before this case, I think a lot of folks thought would get you to the same place. And there was actually an advantage, um, you know, from the sell side. I think there was a perception that there was an advantage to just staying silent in that, you know, if you had included in the agreement the anti-con ed language and then that had been stricken by the buyer, you might, you know, through the negotiating history, open yourself up to 
you know, some kind of negative inference. So a lot of folks just decided, like, let's be silent on it with the idea that we do think, you know, at least we'll, you know, maintain the leverage of we think that, you know, the Delaware courts will not follow Con Ed, uh, will allow us to act as agent to collect a premium on behalf of our stockholders. What does the court ultimately say? So the court ultimately says Luigi is not entitled to his mootness fee. And I think we can move to the next slide. Um, and kind of kind of looked at these two provisions and said, look, the loss premium provision, if we think about it, if if you look at it in light of the fact that stockholders were not direct third-party beneficiaries, but we have this provision that says, you know, there is damages, you know, damages, you know, in the form of a lost premium. Well, that lost premium is actually the expectation not of the company itself. You think about a merger. The consideration that the buyer pays, in this case, you know, Elon Musk or the company affiliated with Elon Musk, the, the consideration that they pay doesn't go to the company. It goes into a paying agent account and then out to the stockholders after they submit either their stock certificates or the instructions with their uncertificated shares. So it's it's actually the stockholders that if there is any expectation of getting, you know, damages in the form of a lost premium, that belongs to the stockholders and not to the company itself. That's the expectation. And the court said, look, to the extent that you know that that type of provision is in there as like, you know, something along the lines of like liquidated damages, well maybe that's unenforceable on the basis that it's a penalty. Um and so so that was how the court looked at that and said, you know, that's so that lost premium provision if there are not third party beneficiaries on, on you know in the name of stockholders then then maybe that's just a a penalty and then the court said look if if the stockholders do have third party beneficiary you know, rights then they would only vest in contexts where the uh, specific performance is not available which is to say after an award of specific performance has specifically been denied and the buyer, the seller, is at that point then seeking only money damages because the court has declined to, you know, use its equitable power to force the buyer to close. So the court said, look, at, in this case, because you know the deal closed while Twitter itself was still seeking specific performance, there was no daylight, you know, there was no circumstance under which you know this stockholder was looking for its, you know, damages and was entitled to get its damages. You know, while while you know after a specific performance, you know remedy had been denied. So there was no, you know, there was really there was no no case in which you know his claim would have been meritorious when filed. So his, you know, his his request for a mootness fee was denied, which is kind of small beer compared to how important the all of the dicta on the con ed provision really is. And now, kind of where are we in terms of practitioners who are looking at? I mean, a you know, deals looking at at merger agreements. You know, wh where am I seeing? You know, you know, we're in Delaware. We just we we look at these contracts that are governed by Delaware law, and we look at them from both sides, buyers and sellers. Um, what am I seeing out in out in the market now, post CRISPO? Certainly on the buy side, I am seeing absolutely without a doubt. No one is allowing stockholders to be named as third party beneficiaries. There is now a laser like focus on that. Because there was a suggestion in the opinion of the court that you know stockholders and the company concurrently, if specific performance had been denied, 
uh, could bring claims against the buyer. And I think no buyer wants to be subject to claims from the company, uh, the target company on the one hand, and tons of potential stockholders uh, jockeying for position in that same proceeding on the other hand. Um, so certainly buyers are, are you know, you know, rejecting any indication that stockholders would be third-party beneficiaries. Um, I would say mostly now I'm seeing on the buy side people negotiating just to to remain silent on the point altogether, other than specifically saying that uh, stockholders are not third-party beneficiaries. On the sell and, side, and, the, and, the, and that stands to reason, right, John Mark? I mean, the buy, the buyers are like, I mean, I, we're we're happy being silent on this, right? I mean, oh, they're know. absolutely delighted to be silent on this. Now, there's the uh, it used to be that silent you thought it used to be that silent was viewed as sell side friendly now silent is viewed as buy side friendly right yeah um now what am i seeing on the sell side i am <laughs> seeing things along the lines of um all of the language that used to be in a an agreement prior to crispo that that was not silent and then just adding to the fullest extent permitted by law i don't think that really does anything um but i have seen that approach i'm just not sure how much it really accomplishes um other things that i've seen are you know instead of just saying that the um you know, the seller's damages are, you know, taking into account uh, lost premium. Um, I've seen things along the lines of taking into account all of the damages that could be incurred, you know, incurred as a result of the, uh, you know, the breach. And that would include, you know, it's not only lost premium because that, you know, they, you know, these agreements still say taking into account. But if you think about it, after a company signs up a merger agreement and decides to sell itself uh, to a buyer, if that buyer walks away, you know, willfully breaches and just walks away, the company is harmed in in a lot of different ways. I mean, you know, they have you know potentially exposure to employees who may have had you know change of control provisions that were triggered based on the fact that the merger agreement was signed up. You know, they will have been subject to covenants on you know you know restricting their range of authority and motion during the pendency of the you know while the transaction agreement was in in effect and before closing. You know, and that could have you know prevented them from you know really hitting on all their projections. So the company itself actually is harmed and would have expectation that you know would have damage actual damages. Um, so I have seen things like that, and then I've seen you know people adding in or trying negotiating to add in liquidated damages provisions, um, basically saying like our let's just we can't tell you how much these are going to be, but we know that you know this is a good metric for that. Now again, that kind of bleeds into was that a penalty? You know, kind of still still a lot to be. Um, you know, fleshed out here. And I think if we go to the next slide, I want to highlight one other point is that in the context of this Crispo versus Musk opinion, when the court basically said, like, look, we don't think it makes sense for the corporation to appoint itself as agent on behalf of the stockholders to go collect this uh, lost premium, the court did drop a footnote and said, you know, although potentially a corporation could uh, through a provision of its certificate of incorporation, grant to itself this authority to act on behalf of stockholders. Um, so that was interesting. Um, and I actually have seen one, there is one transaction out there uh, where the company, in connection with seeking its vote on, a, on the merger, went out with a charter provision saying, and hey, we also want you stockholders to approve this charter provision that would grant us the authority to act as agent for purposes of um, you know, collecting these lost premium remedies if if ever necessary. Now that, um, you know, the merger agreement wasn't conditioned on it. Um, and I think 
there may have been a topping bid, and I, I have to, to. It hasn't gone through yet, as far as I know. Um, the other, the other thought was, well, if you could do it through a provision of the certificate of incorporation, the question becomes, in the court's opinion, you know, cited language from Section 102B uh, of the Delaware General Corporation Law that says, you know, charter can contain any provision regulating business and affairs, and blah 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 blah, directors, officers, etc. Section 109, which governs bylaws, has very similar language, and the question was, well. Could you do this in a bylaw? And what's the difference? Obviously, with a bylaw, in almost every case, specifically with a public company, the board itself, without going out to the stockholders, has the power to amend the bylaws. The difference with the charter provision is that the board um, generally, you know, can't amend the certificate of incorporation without a vote of the public stockholders. Um, the uh, so if you could do it with a bylaw, you know, that would dispense with the need to go out for the vote of the stockholders. Um, Unclear whether that would work. Obviously, I mean, the court did say charter provision, not bylaw provision. Maybe there is a, a you know a negative implication there that you know this is too substantive. I mean, charter provisions can govern substantive rights. Bylaws are are really you know limited to procedure, you know, matters of process, uh, process oriented matters. Um, I think there's an argument if you could do it in a charter, you could do it in the bylaws. But I, again, I mean, that's it's. Not, yeah. not a whole lot of clarity. Yeah, I mean, it, it was interesting, right? Because the, yeah, the the um, Chancellor McCormick said something like, you know, it, it it this agency theory is sort of on shaky ground because the the corporation can't appoint, you know, can't appoint itself the 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 agent of the stockholders, right? Um, which is sort of interesting. Uh, I mean, that that kind of makes sense. But on the other hand, in a merger, you know, I mean, the corporation is the party to the merger, so it, I mean, it's interesting. But um, and the, and the bylaw point is also interesting because there's other analogs, right, where bylaw provisions are have the same effect of a charter amendment, right, like form selection clauses right. in Delaware, right? So so that there's there's something to be said about that theory too, right? That's exactly right, exactly right. And and look, I mean, you could also argue that this agency appointment, you know, is is not that different from you know appointing a class representative, and that's in the rules of civil procedure, which all deals with process. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 No. Well, I mean, I think this is, I, I mean, in, in the world of public company M&A, uh, th there was a lot of like, you know, rut row when this, <laughs> when this, uh, case came out. So, um, I think people are still trying to figure out uh, how best to deal with it and, and protect the, the seller's expectation, right. Of, uh, of the lost premium, um, in deals that don't close. Right. I think it's exactly right. And, and I think we'll, we'll start, you know, we will see, yeah, you know, we'll we'll start to see the practice coalesce. Is my yeah, guess. yeah, yeah. No, well, yeah, more to more to come on that. Um, the uh, the next case we're going to talk about is is H Control Holdings versus Anton Infrastructure Partners. I, this is super interesting to me, um, and and presents a you know, cautionary tale about you know so called hair trigger uh, termination rights. Um, this is another uh, Delaware Chancery Court case. And um, and I'll and I'll let uh, John Mark walk us through the facts in that case and how it came out. Yeah, so this is basically a case where you know private equity fund you know was was looking to buy out this company Optictel uh, or Opticaltel and signed up a merger agreement. Now they had negotiated back and forth, and this kind of is a, a little bit of a callback to uh, when I what I was talking about before with you know when when we're saying you know why did. Why did sellers just stay silent in the merger agreement rather than negotiating for the anti-con ed language? And part of the, the thinking was, well, we don't want, you know, a negative inference from the drafting. But, you know, in this case, 
you know, the buyers, private equity fund negotiated for a bring down to the cap rep and the bring down they had come down flat. And so it was basically, look, you know, what you have as your capitalization for the company that we are buying and for all of its subs is exactly what it is. And you have to bring that down to the exact dollar so that, you know, to the exact number so that we don't pay $1 more than we have agreed to pay based on what you are telling us is, you know, your outstanding capitalization. So following the, uh, you know, after the, the merger agreement was signed, um, you know, one of the company's former employee, one of the target company's former employees, um, you know, kind of materialized and said, hey, guys, I had, you know, this employment agreement and you promised me that I would get, you know, X number of shares of this subsidiary, you know, 5% of this subsidiary. Um, and I want that money. And, you know, we're looking at a deal, it was a couple hundred million dollars was the overall, you know, value of the deal. And, and this guy, I think, was, um, you know, looking for about $200,000 or so. Um, now, I think we probably move to the next slide. The um, so there was a you know there was a question about you know I mean I the interesting there was a question about you know what was this guy looking for and he said you know he had this like I said he had this employment agreement that that gave him you know five percent ownership of H Control to be distributed upon a liquidation event. Um, he didn't really have actual equity. The court said it was phantom equity. The representation said that there was no phantom equity outstanding. And again, all of this had to be brought down flat. Now, before the requirement in the agreement to bring down this capital or, you know, the capitalization representation, uh, you know, in, in all respects, you know, brought, bring it down flat, the, uh, the sellers had negotiated for a provision that said, you know, we'll bring it down in you know in all material respects other than you know de minimis inconsistencies and that's not in my experience and alex i would invite your you know views as well but in my experience that's probably the most common formulation i see maybe de minimis you know we'll bring down the capitalization rep to a de minimis standard and then maybe the second most i see after that is you know in all material respects but probably de minimis is what i see the most because that's the that, those are the dollars you're paying yeah that's right and i think you you know years ago i don't think you saw any qualifier and then you began to see some qualifiers creep into merger agreements and you see de minimis a lot for the for the reason that we're really getting to which is you know if you're one share off should that really you know should that really have any implication it particularly in a merger right where where you know well Anyway, I, I don't want to. Yeah, I mean, particularly in a merger. I mean, particularly in. A, I mean, look, the um, in a in in private companies in particular, sometimes you know people have a a good hand. You know, they've got everything on Carta, and then you know you <laughs> right. find out that they forgot that they gave you know some former employee you know forty you know shares of restricted stock at this time, and yeah. yada yada yada. So in this case, I mean, look, like I said, this is a couple hundred million dollars in terms of merger consideration overall. This guy was looking for like $200,000. The company actually did everything they could to try to work this deal out. This is clearly a situation where the buyers, well, I'm not going to say clearly. Yeah, 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 no, it, yeah that's, what it, that's what it feels like, right? I mean, from the outsider's perspective, this was, this was a clever, this was an opportunistic buyer to basically turn the merger agreement into, into an option agreement, right? And they got cold feet and they decided they would walk away, right? That is exactly what I think. Yeah. Yeah, because and and because because in this particular case, I mean, the sellers were 
were not trying to, you know, they, they said they, they tried to solve the problem and they tried to pay for it. And they were, they weren't objecting to any kind of indemnity obligations that they had under the merger agreement. Right. In order, you know, in, in, in terms of capitalization reps and things like that. So they, they were, you know, this is, I mean, this, I mean, this is like the, the nightmare scenario, right. Where someone comes out of the woodwork and claims some ownership interest and the sellers are prepared to indemnify the buyer, right. And make the problem go away from an economic standpoint, um, but but the buyer effectively had an option agreement, and the court was sort of funny about it, right? They said, um, "We we can't believe that this is actually what you know, you know what what folks intended. Like, if you're one share off or something like that, do you really want to turn this into an option agreement?" But they said that's what the words on the page say, and we're going to enforce the agreement. Yeah, and it is. I mean, look, it's it is it is exactly it is exactly what the words on on the page say, and. You know, and that's you know, in some respects, it's 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 difficult because that it seems so harsh here, but unfortunately, if you don't have the courts saying things like that, you run the risk of in other circumstances where you have specifically negotiated for a specific outcome, the court saying, "Well, you know, I'm, I'm a court of equity; I can do whatever I want." But then, you, then you have the court rewriting your agreement. So right, right. it does seem unduly harsh here. I mean, honestly, this does seem like a like a if this were a normal buyer and they wanted to go through with the deal, my guess is they could have solved this problem pretty easily. Yeah, this 100%. buyer did yeah. not want to go through with this deal. Yeah, exactly. We're, we're gonna, we're gonna. I think we're gonna see a lot more de minimis um, thresholds, or you know, on the on the cap, exactly on right. the cap rent bring down. Exactly. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, okay, great. So the the third case is this is uh, is Bridge Bio uh, Pharma here, and um, this involved the case of a so-called controller of uh, the target company who was unwilling to sell its stake in the target, and whether that resistance precluded the application of the MFW framework in connection with the target's sale process. And you know, for the uninitiated. <clears throat> Uh, the MFW framework provides a pathway to business judgment review rather than entire fairness review uh, of transactions involving a conflicted controller or conflicted board. Um, that was laid out by then-Chancellor uh, Leo Strine in the Khan versus MNF Worldwide case in 2015, and, and we now refer to that as the MFW uh, standard MFW framework. And, uh, and John Mark, I'll let you, you pick it up from here. Yeah, so no, it's, it's exactly right. So the Delaware law has evolved to the point where in any circumstance where a controlling stockholder is either on both sides of the transaction, which is to say, you know, the, the controller is buying out the minority uh, or is receiving some type of non-rateable benefit. So think of any benefit that they don't share with other stockholders. There aren't really many, you know, the one benefit that you can think of that they're going to share with other stockholders is a dividend, um, you know, assuming it's a pro rata dividend and they're all holding the same class of stock. Um, but but anytime that a controller is, you know, on both sides, like in a buy, you know, a buyout, you know, minority buyout or getting a non-rateable benefit, the entire fairness standard applies ab initio. So, I mean, typically you think of how does Delaware law work with respect to when somebody challenges a transaction, how does the court look at it? Well, your your default mode is the business judgment rule, which is to say a court is not going to substitute its judgment for the judgment of a you know disinterested, fully informed board of directors that's acting in good faith. And that's the, the standard is that everybody's presumed. Plaintiffs get around that typically by saying, well, no, this wasn't a 
you know, disinterested board, disinterested independent board, we can call into question, you know, the disinterestedness or independence of at least half of these folks. So that's you're rebutting the presumption of the business judgment rule. And that you do at the pleading stage, they rebut it, then you then you move into entire fairness. Here, the courts just say, look, we're, we're going to dispense with that. Just status crime almost. If you have a situation where a controller is buying out the minority, it's entire fairness from the absolute get-go. Don't even need that stage of let's try to rebut the presumption of business judgment. The law rebuts it for you. Oddly, though, you can get out of that that framework of, of business. You well, know, and, and hey, John Mark, before you go there, just to say, just to underscore that point, if you're in that territory, right, it's that you have to the, then the the you've got a burden shifting paradigm, right, and you've got to show entire fairness, right, which means fair price and fair and fair process, right. That's right. So and and that's and that's really hard. <laughs> yeah, and the, the difference between business judgment and entire fairness is that if the business judgment rule applies, for the most part, you file a motion to dismiss, the case is gone. If entire fairness applies. You file a motion to dismiss, maybe. And if you file a motion to dismiss, you're going to find out that entire fairness applied because the court's going to deny motion to dismiss in an opinion. And that opinion is going to make you look really bad because they have to take all the plaintiff's facts as true and correct. Or you answer in which you've just acknowledged like, yep, we're just fighting this and we're going to go to trial. And going to trial is going to take you know a long time. There's factual development. People get deposed. <laughs> you know, Experts come in and you're fighting about price and process. Now, MFW gives an opportunity for almost like a mini trial at the beginning on purely procedural points to see if we get back to business judgment. And what, M what the MFW standard that Alex introduced says is, is, is exactly as he said, that if a transaction from the get-go, one of these majority holder, you know, majority stockholder buyout transactions that is, you know, subject to two procedural protections. One is that the buyer before anybody has any substantive economic negotiations. So it's got to be that's that's one one prong. Before anybody starts talking dollars, the buyer says, "I would like to do this transaction where I'm going to buy out the minority or whatever the transaction may be." I'm not moving forward unless two things. One, you have a special committee of independent disinterested directors who are delegated with the full power to negotiate against me. That's number one. Number two, we are going to condition the procession of this transaction on the vote of a majority of the minority stockholders acting on a fully informed, uncoerced basis. So that the controller has to say transaction is subject to those two conditions. Now, if, if the controller from the outset, and it has to be from the outset, why does it have to be from the outset? Well, the courts have said, look, what you can't have is the controller saying, I want to do this deal, I want to do this deal. And then at the very end saying, yeah, I was going to offer you $17.50 a share, but I'll tell you what, I'll give you $17 and I'll trade you that extra 50 cents. I'll, I'll give you the majority of the minority vote. So the court said you can't trade process for economics. So that's why that, that has to be in effect from the very get-go. But if you have those things in effect from the get-go, what will end up happening is at the very beginning of the case, the court will almost conduct like, I think of it as like a little mini trial just on whether those conditions were validly implemented. And it's two conditions, but each one of them is like broken down into a bunch of parts. It's like, was the committee fully functioning? Was it duly empowered? You know, how, how did it do? Were its members all actually, you know, independent? The, um, 
that's that's one piece. And then the second piece is, you know, the disclosure. Did the did the disclosure to the minority stockholders was it actually, you know, did they get all the information that was material to their decision whether to approve the deal? But if the committee was fully functioning, duly empowered, all those good things, and the stock, you know, majority of the minority stockholders, you know, approved the transaction, you know, on a fully informed basis, and there was no allegation of coercion, then the court will apply the business judgment rule. Now, here's where it gets interesting. And the reason that we're talking about this bridge bio case is that if we, th I mean, this was a situation where, you know, this company, Eidos Therapeutics, it, it did have a controlling stockholder uh, in the form of Bridge Bio that owned 63%, wanted to buy out the balance of the stock, um, you know, was speaking with the company over a period of months saying, you know, here's here's our deal, here's our deal, here's our deal, here's our deal. Finally, the company gets to a point where um, it decides like, yeah, you know, maybe this does make sense. I think we move on to the next slide. Um, so, like I said, after the first couple of off offers were rejected, Bridge Bio actually goes to the committee and presents its best and final offer. Um, offers, you know, some shares of Bridge Bio plus, you know, a quantum of cash um, up to a, a cap of 175 million, uh, 175 million dollars. The the special committee actually ends up recommending that best and final deal. Obviously, subject to their getting a fairness opinion, uh, they go to, you know, they end up you know, executing this merger agreement. And then as we go to our next slide, what happens? GSK, GlaxoSmithKline comes in, contacts Bridge Bio's board and says, hey, you know, we actually have some interest in buying out um, all of Eidos' equity, including, um, you know, their stake at a, at a pretty, pretty hefty premium. Um, and they were willing to pay, you know, more than 120 bucks a share um, as long as they could engage and and bridge bio basically said nope we are buyers we are not sellers <laughs> and um you know here you've got a situation where potentially you know the stockholders are getting you know much larger you know amount of consideration particularly in the form of you know all all cash than they would in the you know bridge bio deal but nevertheless you've got the court applying business judgment because Look, we did have a fully functioning special committee. They did have the power to veto the transaction. The uh, majority of minority stockholders still saw, you know, they still saw that there was this other deal out there. Nevertheless, they approved the transaction, fully informed basis. Uh, and so the idea was, look, we're not going to, you know, once business judgment rule applies, the court's not going to substitute its own judgment. You had, you know, disinterested, independent, you know, negotiating authority in the form of the committee. You had essentially the stockholders, the owners, the, the you know majority of the minority saying, you know, we we want this deal. So analyzes it under the um, MFW framework and business judgment rule, and essentially dismissed. Yeah, and 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 I guess that I mean that that makes sense, right? But it is it it is um uh well I guess I mean obviously it hadn't been answered before, but it's also uh. I mean, it shows the power of a controlling stockholder, and and if you're not in, you know, if you're not in sell mode, they can they can block a deal, and you know, oh well. well it's, you know, and it's interesting because typically, and I, I mean, I would, you know, when you see kind of the first overture from a controller, it is something you will see in the letter. Like if they're going to do MFW, it is, you know, we would like to buy you out. Here's what we're thinking. Um, you know, we are. You know, we're, we would we would like you to set up a committee. We're only moving forward if if they're doing the MFW. We're only moving forward with the majority of the minority vote, 
And oh, by the way, we are buyers and we are not sellers. Right. Yeah. 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 And, and yeah, that's interesting. You know, just as a side point, I mean, um, it's the MFW framework was seen as like this, um, I mean, valuable approach, right? I mean, it's sort of a get out of jail free card if you do it properly. Um, but not every not every controller says, let's do it that way, right? I mean, there, I guess there are some cases where controllers say, no, let's just go the old fashioned way. We'll just, you know, we'll be subject, we'll be subjected to uh, uh, entire fairness if it's challenged. Yeah, I mean, I, I see in, in those instances, um, which I do see, not I would say not infrequent. Um, still, there will be a committee, obviously, because I mean, you know, just the board yeah. as a general manager, you, you don't want to have the representatives of the controller in the room negotiating against themselves. Right. So you you will definitely see a committee. Uh, the committee will typically, you know, have their own lawyers and and their own bankers, and they'll you know they'll negotiate you know at arm's length, is, you know, against the the controller. Um, but the the reason to I mean, look, there's a lot of particularly as the controller's stake gets higher and higher, you're putting a lot of a consummation risk on the deal um on the on the getting the minority the majority on the getting the majority minority vote yeah yeah no that makes sense that seems to be the key issue right and there is <laughs> there is some benefit i mean look there's still even with just the committee and not you know either either use of a committee or a majority minority vote you know outside of the mfw framework so where it's one or the other um but not both and not both from the outset um, that will result in a burden shift. So when you're in entire fairness of an issue, it's the the burden of proof. So that the party that has to prove that the deal was entirely fair is the defendant. Um, but if the uh, if you have a special committee or a majority minority vote, that burden shifts to the plaintiffs, where it becomes their burden to prove that it was unfair. Right. 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 Uh, okay. Uh, Let's move on to the next one. Um, Columbia <clears throat> Columbia Pipeline. Um, this this case involved allegations that the buyer aided and abetted breaches of fiduciary duty. And John Mark, why don't you want to explain the facts? They were pretty pretty damning. <laughs> yeah. So the the facts and it's 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 hard to summarize these facts. Um, you know, particularly in the in the course of like a, a CLE type program because yeah. the opinion was 196 pages long. <laughs> um, and, and I mean, and, and it was just a, in about, you know, I would say at least half of that, maybe, I mean, more than half of that was, was just a, a recitation of all the facts. Um, and, well, but well, I think, and just, I mean, if, yeah, to the extent that you can short circuit and summarize the, the, you know, the, the, the big picture, that's good. We'll have the slides available for folks um, separately and, and the, the slides fully go into more of the detail. But basically, the um, so th this was a situation. I'll, I'll try to try to channel the court as best I can, and how the court was looking at it. But you know, you had two officers of a company, you know, of Nysource, which is a huge, huge company, um, and they had they had change of controller, and both of them were nearing retirement age ish. Um, and they both had change of control arrangements with with Nysource, but the likelihood of a change of control of a company that big was was just not not seeming like it was in the cards. So they kind of maybe according to the court engineered essentially a spinoff by Nysource of Columbia Pipeline, you know, into a a large but but much you know still large but much smaller company 
than than Nisource. So they they kind of uh, you know Columbia Pipeline is spun off from Nisource. They become you know CEO and CFO uh, respectively uh, of Columbia Pipeline. It is like I said, it's a large company, but it's it's not nearly as as big as it's you know the the company from which it was spun, and it becomes pretty quickly. Um, a target, you know, an acquisition target for a larger company called TransCanada. Um, and, you know, cutting through it all, uh, the allegations on the part of the plaintiffs were that, look, these two, these two officers, um, they wanted to, they wanted to, they wanted to sell. They wanted to get out. They wanted, they were ready to retire. They had these massive, you know, change of control packages. And you know, with those massive change of control packages, if they managed to get you know a deal done, they were going to be, you know, they they would have their toes in some very white sand. Um, and and essentially, when Columbia Pipeline came in, offered them like say you know twenty four bucks a share, they negotiated them up to twenty six dollars a share. But then you know, as it turns out. Columbia Pipeline came back down again to 2550. And there were all types of, and look, like I said, the facts are, you know, incredibly, you know, this is an incredibly fact-intensive case, but you know, there are all kinds of like different relationships with the, you know, the bankers and who was running this and that. And there were all kinds of allegations of back channeling. Um, but you know, the sum and substance of it is the court, you know, found that more or less these guys. You know, while they weren't willing to give the company away for you know an absolute song, they were willing to to sell it for less than what you know a real third party buyer not taking advantage of the fact that these folks you know wanted to get out in violation of their obligation to do the best thing for the company and all of its stockholders, but rather who were you know looking out for their desire to you know get out and go enjoy their retirement. So again, you know, how does an aiding and abetting, you know, it used to be many years ago, it used to be that you would say aiding and abetting, you know, on the part of a buyer was an almost impossible claim to bring. Uh, that unfortunately, well, unfortunately for me as a defense lawyer is, is, is not the case any longer. Uh, we have seen a few instances recently, you know, mind body is one and, and, and this and a couple of others, but where, where parties have been uh, found to have aided and abetted, um, you know, a breach of fiduciary duty. And, you always think that's very tough from the buy side because what do you, you as a buyer you're supposed to negotiate to get the best transaction you can get but you know in this situation look when you think about the traditional claims of a you know you know making out a claim for aiding and abetting breach of fiduciary duty and they're up on the screen it's you know the existence of a fiduciary relationship so obviously the CEO and the CFO you know senior C-suite officers of the company both owe fiduciary duties to the company and all of its stockholders a breach of that duty by the fiduciary so here what were the you know, what was the quantum of the breach it was basically they were looking out for their own interests in terms of you know retiring moving off to the sunset and rather than than looking out for what their their obligation their situational obligation was was to get the highest price reasonably available um and then kind of you know not only that but like once you know once you've got you know the the element of you know there is a fiduciary relationship, there is the breach, and then there's knowing participation in the breach. And again, if you go back to the facts of this case, there are a lot of different allegations of, you know, how, uh, you know, the buyer, you know, TransCanada came in, 
and tried to take advantage of that fiduciary relationship, knowing that these folks wanted to get out. And then the damages, you know, were approximately caused by the breach. Um, you know, here it was that they, you know, would have paid something closer to twenty six fifty a share, which is ultimately the court came out. The deal price was twenty five fifty. The court ordered a dollar uh, per share, in um, you know, as damages. Um, so it, that ended up being what the court viewed as what the price would have been had this breach not occurred. Um, one other thing that's notable here, though, is that the, um, you know, the, the the there was a an allegation that that TransCanada that there was a there was a disclosure violation, um, and that the uh, you know the stockholders had they been aware uh, of this disclosure violation they weren't going to you know vote for the deal et cetera et cetera. But but, but basically the question was you know. Did folks rely on on these disclosure violations and the and the disclosure violation and and look TransCanada was found to have knowingly participated because they reviewed the proxy statement as is the case in every single merger agreement allows the buyer an opportunity to review the the proxy statement um, but you know they knowingly participated in this disclosure violation um, with respect to these you know what were alleged to be material you know omissions um, in the term you know in most of which were around like the interests of these specific officers. Um, and the court found that, you know, it is a rebuttable presumption. This is the first time I think the court really found it, but a rebuttable presumption that stockholders generally are, you know, you know, kind of relying on this and, and are, are damaged uh, by this. Now, in this case, the court found that there were nominal damages in the form of like 50 cents, and that was all embedded within the dollar that was found for the, the actual damages for the fiduciary breach. But I think that is an interesting uh, development from this case, this notion of like a rebuttable presumption of, of reliance on the disclosure documents. Um, that that is an interesting uh, element. Maybe we'll see more more of that in in uh, a claim for uh, in um, M&A litigation in the future. Um, cognizant of time, we'll hit the last case uh, quickly. John Mark Tiger Resort. Uh, this involved, and we can go through this quickly. Involved a busted deal, uh, DSPAC transaction. The Chancery Court um, declined to award specific performance, compelling the target uh, to use its reasonable best efforts to close, despite the transaction agreement calling for specific performance as a as a, an available remedy. Um, and you can maybe quickly quickly go through this. Yeah, I mean, just just very briefly. I mean, this is I I will say this this is in the deck, and you can read again. This is another one where the facts are just you know, yeah, they're uh, involved. Yeah. But it is it is interesting in the sense that I think, and this will kind of take us full circle. I I think that in in most cases, <clears throat> in an M and A context, the court is um, inclined to award specific performance. I mean, it just, it does seem to be, you know, I, and I go back to what I said about, you know, IVP, um, you know, it just seems to be like the most natural remedy. Now, look, in the, in context where there's a private equity buyer, it might not be, you know, might not be feasible because, you know, they're just writing an equity check and, you know, if that's not there, you don't really get specific performance by the terms of the agreement, but the, um, you know, in a, in a true like you know strategic situation, I think specific performance is is really where the court wants to go. This is I would view this case as a little bit of an outlier, is as one where the court you know declined um, to uh, award specific performance. And I think the um, you know part of the part of the and I, I think most important for this you know discussion is you know why you know what are the circumstances under which a court is not going to 
um, award specific performance. Now remember, it's equitable relief. Um, so the court said, look, like first factor in this case, and again, the facts are probably too too much to go through at this point, but like the complexity of the undertaking and the the difficulty of providing you know oversight. There was a lot of you know offshore stuff and and the like. Um, second factor, you know, whether it would be enforceable. Um, the um, third factor, you know, would it actually, you know, there was there was a, it would have interfered potentially with another court's order. Um, and then the um, there was also like, look, we are in a court of equity. This is equitable relief. You know, in this case, there were allegations of, you know, kind of equitable, <laughs> the uh, <clears throat> some misconduct um, on the part of the plaintiff. And so, you know, you can't really come to a court of equity with with your own unclean hands and, and ask the court to do your bidding. Um, but I would say, look, I, I think that ultimately, you know, cognizant of the the time here, I would say that for the most part, I think the courts, particularly in a, you know, in a setting where, you know, you've got strategic buyers, the court, even, even in, look, I mean, even in, even in the KK case from a, a little bit ago, you know, the, it was a private equity, you know, financial buyer, but the, the court is going to be inclined to, enter an award of specific performance, but there are circumstances, and, and this is one example, and I would recommend these slides are, and, and going back to the case, because the, the facts are pretty fascinating. Yeah, uh, but, but I think that's an important takeaway that, I mean, just for, for folks is, is just that um, inclination, I think, probably to to uh, to grant specific performance in a merger agreement. I mean, that's um, that's telling. I mean, there, I think the facts here are complicated for Tiger Resort, and, and that probably made everyone's head hurt. <laughs> I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, this is a, that's a rapid fire sort of summary of recent uh, key cases affecting M&A transactions. And John, Mark, I really appreciate your uh, expertise walking us through those. Uh, I recommend um, these cases to uh, the participants and we'll make the slides available. And I think with that, we can conclude. Thank you very much. Thanks all.